The United States of America was originally built on two important documents. The first, the Declaration of Independence, was signed by 56 men in the middle of 1776. The second, the Constitution, was signed by 39 men in September of 1787. Six of those men put their John Hancock on both documents. Authors Denise Kiernan and Joseph Dagnes have written short background stories about 95 of the signers in two books, Signing Their Lives Away for the Declaration of Independence and Signing Their Rights Away for the Constitution. Denise Kiernan and Joseph Dagnese, you wrote a couple of books back in 2009-2010 about the Constitution and about the Declaration of Independence. Why? Well, that, you know, as most uh, great books often, uh, the germs often start in the shower, which is exactly where this one started. Um, I was, we were, I was taking a shower and I was thinking to myself for some reason, probably just because I'm a big old nerd, that uh, I could only name like a handful of signers of the Declaration of Independence. So I see him in the office in the morning and I said, how many how many signers can you name? And we all we both just kept like I remember hearing something when I was taking a tour in this town that this guy signed. And I thought to myself, 56 guys signed this thing. And between the two of us, we can come up with five. That sounds pretty pathetic. Um, And why is that? Because then we realized, well, that's what most people can come up with is maybe five if if they're lucky well the world should know first and foremost that you two are married at least you were the last time i looked anyway joe what's your take on (laughs) what's your take on this yeah i mean i i remember as a kid growing up in new jersey learning for the first time about francis hopkinson who was one of the signers of the declaration from new jersey which was not one I could name when yeah, we but were trying. That name stuck in my head and I started learning about him when I was a kid. And what interested me about him was that he was, it sort of cut from the same mold as Thomas Jefferson. He was a poet. He he wrote an opera. He wrote, you know, little songs and ditties, you know, during the Revolutionary War. Uh, he was an inventor. He built his own harpsichord or clavichord or what are those things? He um, was quite the Renaissance man. Quite the Renaissance man. But what you end up, you never, nobody knows about him. You know, most of us know about Thomas Jefferson as have being that sort of latter day Renaissance man or or Benjamin Franklin sort of in the same. But Hopkinson knew both of them, hung out with them in Philadelphia. They would go to these salons at Rittenhouse's house uh, in Philadelphia and have these scientific and philosophical conversations. But why do you think you wanted to write this book? I mean, (laughs) exactly. I mean, mostly because um, I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be a really cool idea to see if, like, there are other people like Hopkinson who are not as well known and have interesting backstories? But what we discovered as we got into it is, like, you know, a handful of these guys went on to do amazing things after signing the Declaration of Independence. And then a vast majority of them went into public service or they retired to their businesses or their farms. And we never hear from them 
ever again. John Hart uh, from New Jersey, uh, Thomas Morton from, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Morton from, from Pennsylvania. They they go off on their lives and they never do anything else of of, of vast significance. After or that. or that we consider yeah. today to be of vast significance. I would say that a lot of these people were quite significant in their own way and in many ways, in ways that we can relate to. As I consider myself, you know, I, I am not a leader of government, but you know, I can read about some guy who was a cobbler who became interested in law and then decides to take on the responsibility to be a part of what was an incredible moment in history. And, you know, maybe we can't remember their names, but they still went on to have some of them, you know, great impacts on their communities, on their families, and found themselves, as so many people do throughout history, at a particular place at a particular time and they decide to show up and do their best before and we before we start talking about some of the individuals let me just ask a, a couple of uh, process questions where are you two today where do you live we are in our office in Asheville North Carolina how long have you lived there in Asheville, almost 16, 17 years. 17 years now. Yeah. We lived in New York City for a long time. Um, but we've been here almost 17 years now. Joe, where did you come from originally? Um, I I grew up in, in New Jersey. Where'd you go um, to school? I, what's that? Where'd you go to school? I went to Syracuse University, upstate New York, uh, and then went, later went into journalism in New York City. And well, then, you know... We moved here probably about 17 years ago, something like that. 16, we already said that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what kind of early jobs did you have in journalism? Um, uh. I mean, my probably my first job out of school, I was writing for like Teeny Bopper magazines. And then I ended up working for Scholastic, um, editing a children's math magazine, uh, which is how we met are you know writing from uh, writing about math and you know the fibonacci sequence and stuff like that that you know other things that i didn't know about as i was growing up but then suddenly became fascinating to me as a as an adult <laughs> he thought it was he thought it was really cool that i knew how to add mixed fractions that's yeah. that's how we met hired <laughs> so denise where are you from originally i am an army brat so my family is from Brooklyn and Long Island, but I grew up a little bit all over the place. I was born in Germany and, you know, lived in Georgia, Missouri, Alaska, you know, all over. And then ended up uh, graduating from NYU and stayed in New York City to get into, um, after some traveling and abroad, uh, ended up in New York City to start off in journalism and was a research assistant to a journalist named Wayne Barrett, who was a very big influence on me at the Village Voice. And why was he an influence on you? Because I basically hung on his 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 every word and his every p you mentioned process and i studied his process just by watching his complete and utter commitment to getting things as pinned down and correct and factual as possible 
And I also watched and was, I, I feel very privileged to have been able to um, be in that office and learn from him, especially when I would watch him interview or cover topics that he was not necessarily uh, fond of or talk to people he did not necessarily agree with and still managed to have a polite, respectful, even if it got contentious conversation in order to, you know, serve what I would consider to be the, his higher goal, which would be to get some version of the truth on what was then paper. Let's talk about the Declaration first. There are two books, one on the Declaration, one on the Constitution. It's easy now, what we're about to do to get very confused. So people will have to go out and buy your books to straighten all that out. But if if you just stick with the Declaration, you said there are 56 signers. 1776 will celebrate 250 years in 2026. I know. Both of you name somebody who signed that you are particularly struck by, not necessarily because they were good or bad, but just got your attention in the beginning. Roger Roger Sherman for me. Roger Sherman, Roger Sherman and Caesar Rodney. Roger Sherman probably for why, me. Why? Um, he was yes. So uh, Roger Sherman was from Connecticut. Uh, his father made shoes. He learned to make shoes. He started off in in life as a cobbler, and uh, was active in his community. Became interested in in law, and he was just always there <laughs> and he was just always a part of what was of what was going on so to me it came from what was at the time you know a very humble but a very you know common background in a not yet the united states in the colonies and you know he is the only person who has signed all four of the organizational documents in of the founding of the united states the um, Articles of Association, uh, Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and then the Constitution. And to me, to be just, you know, a cobbler turned lawyer who was a part of these, all of these different moments in history and didn't necessarily get a ton of uh, appreciation just for his, I guess, commitment to doing work as a public servant. Uh, that's what I found. That's what I found interesting about him. I've, I've always liked Roger Sherman. Besides that, uh, Francis Hopkinson, Joe, who's your first choice? Um, I would, uh, you know, you just mentioned Caesar Rodney, and I think I'm going to steal that one because it was it <laughs> was sort one. of a, an interesting story because it reminded me of like the famous writer Paul Revere, uh, in the sense that his you know Caesar Rodney oh, from bit, from yeah. Delaware. Um, <clears throat> A man who suffered from skin cancer uh, wore, according to, to different accounts, he either wore a turban around his head to kind of hide what what some failed surgery or bad surgery, or a kind of um, um, veil veil over yeah. over cheek. But you know, this sickly man gets on a horse one day and rides, you know, overnight uh, to Philadelphia from his home in Delaware, about eighty miles or so. Uh, to be able to cast a vote for independence uh, because his state, Delaware, was deadlocked. Uh, his the colony was was deadlocked. But that that story has been told a million times. There've been children's books uh, about it. Uh, there's a giant statue in Wilmington, Delaware, of him on his horse. I had never heard of the man 
until he's on he's the starting. quarter. He's on the quarter. Yeah, now. yeah, he's on the quarter for the Delaware State Quarter. Um, you know, you can see that flip side of the man on the horse. But I had never heard of him before, and that story sounded fascinating to me. It's like if if we're telling the story to kids, don't should we be sharing the story with adults as well? But one of the other things from a also from a process point of view that I found interesting about the Rodney story was how many times um, it was told multiple times over since Rodney was alive and then by people who knew him and then by, you know, various, uh, you know, people who sort of carried the story forward. But then, of course, as we always should, we look back at what we have accepted as truth and perhaps try and dig and see if there's proof or or what kind of support there is. And a, a lot of people started saying that, yeah, this that's kind of overblown. That was, you know, that didn't happen. And then it was in the yeah. 90s or yeah. something? Yeah, they found they they actually found a letter um that he had that Rodney had sent to his brother saying, you know, and it's dated, I think I believe it's either dated this everything matched up yeah i mean he said he said i you know i arrived today to cast a vote for independence after you know riding through riding through the storm because everybody was like this sounds too you know oh yeah he rode through a thunderstorm and he rode all night well guess what he rode through a thunderstorm and he rode all night but we didn't we didn't find out that that was you know true until somebody and that's the great thing about history is Things get unearthed and you go back and you look at the record and you're like, okay, well, it's either time to say, okay, this was right or we need to tweak it. Somebody got it wrong. One of the things I shouldn't probably call it entertaining, but some one of the things about both your books is how often you would quote John Adams. (laughs) And in that chapter on Caesar Rodney, because of the cancer that he had, he had a, a, you know, the face was not normal, but he this quote is uh, strong. John, you write, John Adams described him as, quote, the oddest looking man in the world. He is tall, thin and slender as a reed, pale. His face is not bigger than a large apple. Yet there is a sense and fire, spirit, wit and humor in his countenance. Uh, The reason I mention that, though, is where did you find all this John Adams quotes about these people in your two books? Okay. The the Adams papers number one, which have been digitized and, and online, but since then, since yeah, since then, but back I, then they weren't. Well, yeah, yeah they, they. I mean, what I like about John Adams is that he was constantly writing letters to people. At the same time, he was constantly keeping diaries and journals for himself. So we can go back and easily find what he thought about these people. And because because he went on to be such a huge part of American history, those papers were saved. Those yeah. papers were given to historic various historical societies, to the National Archives, etc. <laughs> so not only did he create a wealth of writing, but because of his stature then and continued or even bigger stature today, you could argue, um, those that that incredible volume of work was very well preserved and uh, and shared. And it's I mean, it's a for teachers, researchers, just anybody who's a little bit interested in this time in American history, um, the you know, the founding papers that you can access through the National Archives, the Library of Congress, um, the the Gilder Lerman Institute, the Massachusetts Historical Society. I mean, all these things today, there is so much there and it's such a wonderful resource that is absolutely free uh, 
to anyone. And it, it's especially the diaries and the letters just to be able to feel like you're stepping into someone's frame of mind uh, that long ago. It, it really is quite we're quite fortunate those are around. And we've actually spent a lot of times in archives. And one of the things you learn very quickly is like who had good penmanship, who didn't, because chances are you're going to gravitate towards the person who had good penmanship because you want to be able to read what they actually wrote. And I remember being looking online, uh, I believe it was the Library of Congress, and just marveling at how clear uh, Francis Hopkinson's handwriting oh, was. And you know, to the point where you had no problem reading those words 200 years later, I thought that was very fascinating to be able to do that. Um, okay, there. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fact is, and you pointed out in your book, books, um, that there were six men who signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I'll just read them out loud. Roger Sherman, who uh, Denise talked about, George Clymer, Ben Franklin, Robert Morris, James Wilson, and George Reed. What do you make of the fact that those six signed both? Um, well, what we what we noticed early on with the especially with the declaration signers, a lot of these people may not have had tremendous expertise in a particular area, but they were well regarded. Uh, someone like John Hart was sent from, you know, to be a delegate to Congress from from the state of New Jersey he was a farmer. Uh, now, eventually, you see these people becoming like justices of the peace, but expertise was more fluid in those days than it is today. Like today, it's very unlikely that someone would be both a doctor and a lawyer or a lawyer and a plantation owner. Um, back then, it was very, very common. Uh, so the to be to be sent to Congress was a not so much a measure of what you knew, but how well people regarded you. In that case, the, the people that you mentioned, um, you know, when I think of someone like James Wilson, who was Scottish, uh, lived in Philadelphia, he was he was probably one of the greatest legal minds of that era. And so it seems logical that he would be both involved with the Declaration and the Constitution. Um, and George Reed was similarly uh, well educated. I think that what you what you find as you get closer to the era of the Constitution, you're going to see a lot more of those people that they tapped to be in the Constitutional Convention had backgrounds as legal scholars or judges. Whereas in the Declaration, it was very clear they might have been farmers. They may have been, you know, small town lawyers who were sent to Congress to deal with the Declaration. Just to mention the dates again, 1776 yeah. for the Declaration, 1787 in September yeah. for the Constitution. In the back of your book on the Declaration, you list all of the members who signed, who came or were born in another country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Button Gwinnett was born in Gloucester, England. Francis yeah. Lewis in Wales. Robert Morris in Lancashire, uh, England and on and on. Um, did that matter back then? It 
It did not because everyone at that point has accepted the notion that people were coming from someplace else, at least European, you know, what were going to be European Americans were coming from Europe. Um, it, it was not necessarily an unusual thing. And that comes to play later on in the way that they're thinking in their personal lives, because a lot of these guys started investing in land just on the assumption that there were going to be vast numbers of immigrants coming to this to these shores, just as you know, their families had. Denise, how did you two divide up the chapters? <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. This yes. Is kind of interesting. It, you know, what's funny is we thank goodness 56 was divisible by by two or, or God knows how that would have played out in the house. But one of the things we did first was we, we divided up the ones that we knew everybody was going to, you know, be familiar with already. Right. So with the Constitution, you know, you have people like Washington and Madison and, you know, with the Declaration, you have people like Adams and and Jefferson and Franklin and things like that. So we tried to tried to divide up the biggies and also had a lot more kind of um we had a lot of we had conversations about everyone, but a lot of really in-depth conversations about those guys, because, as you know, what the, these books are signing their lives away and signing their rights away, they are col they are collections of short biographies. Yeah. So one of the more challenging aspects and the reason we divided them up very um, in, you know, uh, intentionally, intentionally is how do you how do you how do you put Benjamin Franklin in two or three pages you know so yeah. and so there was a, a great deal of discussion about that we also flip-flopped as well because one of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that there was a similar tone to all of the individual biographies so i would write something give it to joe and he would edit it not just for you know grammar or flow or whatever but also for tone like well why don't you say this here instead and i would do the same with him so that eventually we we'd swap things so that we felt like there was a more consistent tone throughout the biographies the individual biographies themselves and we ended up playing a game with our editor we tried to get him to guess who wrote? Yeah, who wrote? Who wrote which ones? <laughs> hmm. And we and, and we and we did manage to uh, stump him. Stump him. We did manage times. to stump him quite a few times. So once we agreed on a tone, it was easy for you know when to, to sort of mimic that tone throughout the entire book. But it still took a lot of time. Um, we and did, we did want to divide it also, I'm sorry, to yeah. divide it also according to, we didn't want one of us to just be in charge of a particular colony. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure we were both weighing in uh, on on each of the colonies involved as well. You mentioned that James Wilson, and um, there are just a number of things in there. I, I'll just pick out a sentence. While still serving on that nation's highest court, this yes. is James Wilson. He was arrested and served time in debtor's prison in New Jersey and North Carolina. How many people do you think know that? Oh, my gosh. No one. And but and, and, and but what you're touching on was really one of the more shocking things to discover that many of these signers of both of these documents ended up upside down on loans through bad land investments. Everyone thought this was, you know, I have to buy land in Ohio because... 
Everyone's coming. Everyone's coming. We got to start. We're going to be we're going to make a killing on land if we do this. Well, guess what? You know, just like, you know, just like the housing crisis. Yeah. I mean, 2008, all of a yeah. Suddenly they're, they're all on upside down on the loans. The immigrants don't, you know, necessarily appear in droves and they owe money on property that they bought with, you know, borrowed money. It's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Yeah. Wilson, one of the greatest legal minds that ever shaped, you know, the, the two founding documents of this country ends up in debtor's prison. Uh, at one point, he he escapes or he he runs away after he's been uh, released and ends up in North Carolina hiding out at the home of an, one of his, uh, you know, colleagues, you know, ends up dying, you know, probably of a fever, uh, you know, and it just one of the most tragic ends to the life of, of somebody who, you know, probably all Americans owe an enormous debt to uh, for his contribution to those documents. And the whole, yeah, the whole idea of debtor's prison is something that kind of snuck up on me too. I had been familiar, you know, from school with debtor's prison, but I forgot. I, I, I thought to myself, oh, that's right. No matter who you were, if you couldn't pay your debts, you ended signer of the declaration. Oh, well, you're going to debtor's prison. Signer of the constitution. Oh, well, you're going to debtor's prison because you owe more than this thing you, you know, you owe more than this is worth. Yeah. And uh, that was, it was really interesting to see how many people were, you know, kind of susceptible to, to that, to that. Mean, it, one of his colleagues, uh, Robert Morris, a similar story. The irony in his case is Robert Morris was the financier <laughs> of the American Revolution. Without him, you know, Washington was begging for money for the troops, and he found the money. He went around to all these wealthy friends and saying, like, you know, we need you need to cough up more money uh, for for this army that we, we've put together. He was so reliable from a financial wizardry fundraising standpoint that a lot of times when Washington was requesting money from Congress, it was just, it, it was putting things to Morris's attention. So this great financial mind who was able to raise all of this money for this cause still ended up not being able to pay his own. He ends manage up, his own finances. Yeah, he ends up in a in a debtor's prison. And I believe it was Pennsylvania in, in, in Philadelphia and Washington, Washington visited him. Yeah, Washington actually came and visited him. And what's funny is many years later, we did like a, a book event, I believe, in, in Providence. And one fellow in the audience was, you know, raised his hand and he said he was from the family of 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 William of, of Robert Morris. And he, he told this story about how, you know, even though the, Morris was completely destitute, their family held on to like this one set of silverware. And over the years, each person in the family got like a spoon or a <laughs> fork from that from that set. Kind of an interesting story. But yeah, these are these are fascinating men, but nobody knows about them. So what about the two books? One was in 2009 originally, the other in 2010. Did, yeah. How did you write the two different ones and why did you put them out uh, separately? It, the Declaration book probably took about five years to write, and we had always thought we were going to do a Constitution one, but we... You don't know if the publisher is going to want you to do a Constitution Right, but we were collecting... Yeah, <laughs> honestly. We were collecting stories, and, you know, sometimes, if, you know, if we, you know, wanted to travel to a particular, you know, if we wanted to go on a, on a, a road trip for fun, we would start 
thinking about like, well, what signer trips can we make while we're doing this? And we would, you know, we visited homes of signers, we visited, you know, graves of signers. Sometimes we would, you know, find sites that were associated with them in some way. Um, Finished the first book, which was well received. And then the publisher gave us a go, you know, can we do a a constitution one? Little did they know we had already started collecting. Because there was so much, there was a lot of overlap, not just, uh, I mean, with issues and also, as you mentioned, with some of the individual signers themselves. So we thought there's, there's definitely enough here. And we think people don't know about the signers of the declaration. Well, they they really don't know about the a lot of people don't even realize the actual constitution the original constitution before the bill of rights is signed is signed and which you, um, you you include both the declaration and the constitution and the amendments in one or the other of these books i thought it was interesting this just short paragraph as you opened up the introduction to the uh, uh declaration of independence book there's john hancock of course Sure. And most and most people will correctly identify Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams. But then the guessing begins: colon, George Washington, Paul Revere, and Thomas Paine. You obviously did that for a reason. Did anybody fall for the Paul Revere or Thomas Paine? No, but Washington and the Declaration <laughs> of Independence. I I think most people still think Washington signed yeah. the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we've we've the been, way most people still think. A lot of people think Ben Franklin was president. Was president. Otherwise, why would he be in our currency? Yeah. Uh, so that's <laughs> uh, that. I mean, that's that is another thing that we we notice is just how often these uh, these two documents get conflated. And the people who were who signed or did not sign them we did a piece yeah for years for newsday years back called the declitution and um (laughs) you know it's it's it really does you know as it says in the constitution we hold these truths to be self-evident nope it doesn't say that that. and and this happens often and there's some very you know important people who are involved in law and government who make that deci- did that, that mistake. mistake yeah it's, it's um, easy it's easy i mean we don't grow up knowing about the signers of the constitution there were 39 men who did that so we were intrigued by that and you know the, if you go to see the the two documents today in the national archives you know the, the declaration of independence has been loved to death to the point where you can barely read the signatures at the bottom of the document you can hit this little light button this little button that turns a light on for about two seconds this is in the rotunda of yeah in in the rotunda but then you slip over to the constitution remarkably well um preserved you can read those names um but i think that we we adore both documents but we we have a holiday that is dedicated to the to the declaration of independence and that's the one that most people know about. But we also have a holiday. Constitution Day is September 17th, if anybody is looking for a reason for a barbecue or a picnic. but Well, Senator Robert Byrd got that day set aside, at least for school. Yeah. Um, which one of these books sold them more? The, the, de- the Declaration the of Declaration Independence. One, yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the Declaration. I haven't checked lately. That We're happy to say they still sell. Um, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure the declaration, the declaration is, 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 is further ahead. Well who, over. 100, who buys them today? I mean, what just in general, do you know? 
We actually, I'm I'm surprised when we're doing events for other books that we've published since the number of times people say, oh, well, I got those signers book. That's how I, you know, knew that you were coming out with this one. We, a lot of times when we hear from people, it, I mean, it, at talks is usually when we get the most feedback from readers themselves. Um, you know, my so-and-so in my family, you know, sister, uncle, whatever, has always been a huge fan of American history. And, uh, you know, she loves this sort of stuff. Or uh, people who are just really curious about the other folks, right? We The other folks involved in history, the ones that we don't always talk about and that novelty in and of itself what there were 56 of these guys there were 39 of these guys people who think a lot of times it's people who consider themselves to be history buffs uh but did still did not know about a lot of these people as as we didn't before we started looking into them and the the other thing is i think it's also we like to joke it's a it's a great bathroom book You, it's it's short, right? So you can you can a lot of people also get it for. I I've done a ton of, we've done a ton of um, autograph copies for kids graduating high school or who want to major in history in college, uh, things like that. So uh, usually, you know, for the for the history buff folks, a lot of teachers, a lot, a lot of, of teachers, teachers, a lot I, of teachers. We we did one signing once at the um, old state house in Boston, and this family came up and. There's a little kid there, probably about 10 years old, and he was wanted the Constitution book because he had already read the Declaration book. And I was looking at him like, really, you read that book? And then he started going off about like <laughs> some of his favorite signers. And, you know, I thought I looked at the parents. I'm like, wow, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, good job. Uh, because yeah. that kid is not going to be wondering, you know, at age 20, like who signed the Declaration of Independence? That's right. But it, but it is also, even though it is written, definitely written for an adult audience. Yeah. Kids who are, you know, kids who are good readers, who are really into American history, a lot of parents like getting it for them because it does come in, you know, they are digestible chapters. You can, you know, today, today I'm going to read about this particular signer and then you can move on to something else. If you go to the Thomas Jefferson Memorial here in Washington and you look up at the very top, there's nothing to tell you it's there is uh, it's it's part of a relief committee of five. And the Committee of Five included John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston. Who were the Committee of Five, and why does Thomas Jefferson get all the attention? Okay. Those are two very—the first question's easier than the second part, but yeah. Okay, so if you can imagine getting, you know, 56 guys in in one room, most of them are just there to debate— they want to give their opinion on stuff, but they're not going to do the heavy lifting, which is actually creating this document. So in all these documents, what ha- ends up happening is you end up appointing a committee to actually put the document together. That's what the Committee of Five was. But we understand that today, Jefferson did most of the writing, and then he would circulate drafts to those other four men for their opinions on the style and, you know, uh, you know, to get their comments. He especially ran a lot by, Fra- he and Franklin ran a lot by each other. But yeah. Roger Sherman played a bit, again, yeah. Roger Sherman. Roger Sherman is there. I mean, it, it, you you had, you know, there's a famous 
uh, line I think he sent to one of the documents or the, he had written the, this famous line that was like, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And Franklin crosses out those last three words and just changes it to self-evident. And that is his mark on this document, probably no other words that, you know, Franklin wrote himself in the document. And the drafts themselves, uh, many, if not all, and I, I'm, I'm not entirely yeah. sure, are have survived. And what is really fascinating, and you can look at online now, and it's wonderful, especially for um, educators, you can see the changes between the drafts what was originally in, what got marked through after, and they, and you can keep going through and see how things got taken out or added in or edited as the, as the process went along. But this committee of five with John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Rob, Robert Livingston, these were the guys who basically took a room full of voices, often very loudly arguing voices, and, you know, retired and said, we've got to make some sort of statement out of all of this information. And Jefferson real Jefferson did do a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to language. Plus, he had invented those really cool little he had that he he invented a contraption where you, he could copy his own letters. Yeah. Um, so if he wrote, he could make an identical copy of what he was doing. So yeah, the copying machine. We yeah. better move to the Constitution book, or we yeah, otherwise we'll never talk. I know this I is know. what two. They're all too interesting. But one of the ones that got my attention, um, other than Governor Morris, was oh. the uh, William Blunt, if that's the way you pronounce it. Yeah, Blunt. Blunt. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just wrote down what you wrote. Signed for proof of his presence, rather than as a real uh, as a seal of approval. He was disinterested in politics. Most of his attention was focused on many crimes, schemes, and swindles. He was involved in a plan to incite a war. The Senate charged him with treason and conspiracy. He was the first person to ever be impeached in the United States. That's one of our signers of the Constitution? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, and, yes and, it is. Yeah, there's that. He Blunt, blunt we, I think we even said it at some point. To be blunt. I think to be blunt, we said, in, <laughs> I think we said in the, the chapters, literally said, like, he, this guy was basically a crook. Now, he he was involved in this, this scheme to get the, uh, the British and the Native Americans together to overthrow uh, the government of the United States. Uh, the, at one point, I think Congress even sent um, a sergeant at arms from Congress to go down and arrest him. And basically, he basically took the guy out to dinner, sent him on his merry way, never got arrested, just kept evading things. He and his brother just went around the country, just buying up land under assumed names. Again, the land, the, the land thing, the land rushes. Yeah, yeah. The, the obsession with land. And then later, of course, he can't pay those those notes when the assumed immigration from Europe uh, didn't come through exactly the way that they uh, expected. But. Blunt is a very good example. There's a number of people who, you know, there's one guy from New Jersey who's, I think he embezzled about 18,000 bucks. Uh, but, you know, he's a signer of the Constitution. You know, we we often say they were imperfect men who created a perfect union. A more perfect union. A more not perfect, a perfect union. union. Yeah, a, a, more, a perfect more perfect union. union. Yeah. You, um, you do something in the back that's always fun, and I'm going to go down the list, read them fast, yeah. <clears throat> and then you guys can fill in the the blanks. Um, the oldest oh. 
The oldest signer was Ben Franklin, 81. Yeah. He, yes. was, he was the first signer to die. The youngest signer was New Jersey's Jonathan Dayton, age 26, where they named the Dayton, Ohio after. The document was written in approximately 100 days. We're talking about the Constitution. The uh, youngest signer to die was Richard Dobbs Spate, age 44. Do either one of you know any more about Spate? Yeah, Spate yeah. was a signer from North Carolina, died in a duel. Um, one of three. Yep. You, yeah. said, you point out one of three that died in the duel. Yes. That's right. Yes. That's right. So Spate and uh, and Button Gwinnett. Button Gwinnett. Well, no, he, that was a declaration oh, signer. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to. I cannot remember the other two. They just Ale they, Alexander Hamilton. Oh Alexander. my God! <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. And that's another one where who. <laughs> and let me let me keep she, reading this. You do a musical about that guy. The longest lived uh, signer, longest lived signer, was William Samuel Johnson. He was ninety two. The yep. last signer to die was James Charles? Madison. And no, it, Charles. Oh, Constitution. I'm Constitution. sorry. I'm sorry. Constitution. I know this is. I mean, the listeners are probably saying, "What are they doing?" The number of signers who were bachelors three. The number of men invited to attend the convention. Now, this is where it gets interesting and tricky. Number invited to the, attend the convention, 74. The number who attended, 55. The number who signed, 39. And there were two, three of them there that, that uh, wouldn't sign it, like George Mason and Elbridge Gary. But go, go over those numbers. Yeah, I want to. I'm going to just go into this because I've thought about this over over the years. Imagine that you're like, we need we need to hammer out a new government. Well, most of the legislatures for each of these new states were extremely wary of this idea, like, OK, you're going to create a new government. Ha ha ha. No way. Um, they're very wary of accepting control from another, you know, source there. There's it's all good. Yes. Separate from. Yeah. OK, we separated from England. OK, I maybe I want to be separate from you, colony over there. You know, yeah. there was a lot of I'm not. We just got rid of one ruler. What are we, are we, do we want to be so quick to have, you know, another set in here? So, you know, they basically, you know, asked for delegates. About 74 people were asked to attend the Constitutional Convention in 1787. 55 of them actually show up to do the work. At some but point, not the whole time. At some point, yeah. And that's the thing. It, they started in May. It was signed in September. People were coming and going. Sometimes they left because, you know, they had family matters or business matters to attend to. Other times they left because they were just angry. I don't want to I don't like the way that things are going. I don't want to I, I can't go back to my uh, legislature and say that I had a party. I was a party to this uh, ridiculous enterprise. So I'm leaving. Other people stayed the entire time, but then refused to put their names at it at the end. And so 39 in the end was just how many people they could convince to sign. And it doesn't even indicate like that that quote that you said um, about Blunt. It's like they may not have signed because they were ardent supporters of the document. They just wanted to move on. Um, let me read on in your, your notes in the back. <clears throat> yeah. And I wonder, by the way, you must get a lot of reaction when you go out to these in the back, these kind of statistics. Uh, <laughs> It, besides Dickinson, John Dickinson from Pennsylvania, I believe, yeah. the number of men who left the convention for various reasons and never signed were 13. Yeah. 
Any no. reason why they didn't sign? They, they didn't sign. They didn't sign because they didn't agree. They didn't think that they could sell it to their legislatures. They didn't think that they could sell it to the people back home in their states. This was considered a controversial uh, document that you would somehow kind of like, wait, wait, we've been living without this document for 12 years since the war ended. Why do we need it now? Well, we needed because the country was broke. We weren't taxing anybody. We couldn't raise an army. We couldn't raise a navy. Uh, we were getting through cycles of inflation and deflation. Uh, currency, every state. Currency was all over the map. Yeah, currency was all over the map, literally. <laughs> every state was, you know, issuing its own currency. Banks were issuing their own currency. It was, it was, a, it was a mess. So this document made us a more professional country. <laughs> In certain respects. <laughs> But, but the other be- thing is like, uh, in, to contra- in contrast to the Declaration of Independence, which was, you know, the, the Continental Congress was creating a document to declare, you know, there has been fighting going on. Now we're making this official. This is what we stand for. This was very different because specific legislators were being sent to represent those communities that are that are not subject to English law anymore to represent them and represent ideally their interests and be a part of whatever this you know new government was going to be. But there was so much compromise that needed to take place. A lot of these guys were like, I can't sell this. I can't sell this back home. So I'm And the sign. next couple of pages, you do little scenarios on the those that didn't sign. And some of it is yeah. interesting. I'm going to pick Luther Martin. This hard-drinking, slovenly Baltimore attorney is remembered for his inebriated six-hour speech in defense of the equal voting rights of states. He opposed the Constitution for the same reason as Mercer. That was an earlier one. Both men fought against the document at their state's ratifying convention. Anything you want to say about Luther Martin? Well, yes, and but but before we get to Martin, just to be clear, so once the Constitution is signed in 1787, we're still not done. Okay, so we have to have a minimum number of these states to ratify before it goes into into act. So, Martin. yeah, I mean, the, the the thing about that that story about Martin, he's obviously soused and he's giving this 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 long speech. Um, what we discovered was that there were numerous stories of hard drinking or heavy drinking um, uh, signers in both the Declaration of Independence and and the Constitution, where there are these famous stories about um, uh, Stephen Hopkins, old grape and guts. They old grape and guts, yeah. Nicknamed because of his drinking. Um, <laughs> the, it was not unusual back then. You drank because water was always suspect unless you had a, a spring outside your door, you trusted your well. Um, I think there was one at one point they, they calculated like you'd have like you know six or seven drinks in the course of a day where most people you know today would look at that and say like really they were drinking for breakfast yes of course you drank for breakfast what else would you drink? they trusted it better than than the water at the time so. yeah. yeah here's here's an interesting one too Oliver Ellsworth yes uh, well as some of them go, well-known if you study history. This intelligent lawyer, you're writing this, approved of the Constitution but left the convention because of family obligations. He later served as the nation's third chief justice. How often did you see where somebody didn't sign and they later end up, you know, practically running the country? 
there, he's he's often considered one of the more underrated guys. Yeah, and and we we would notice that where people would be tapped later by the federal government to to to, to serve in some capacity. Uh, Ellsworth is a good example. Uh, Ingersoll was a was a good example. Uh, some people left and you know mysteriously died. No one knows anything about why they you know where they went. Uh, there was one famous one I don't recall uh, who it was, but there was one of the the, the men from, from New York left a hotel one day, was never seen ever again. And one of the good things about Ellsworth also has a remarkable career after all of this, worked so closely with um, Sherman again and, you know, at the Constitutional Convention and was such an important part of what eventually became known as the Great Compromise, originally called the Connecticut Compromise. Right. Um, and... Uh, you know, one of the reasons we're always so thankful when people are obsessed with writing things down. So we had Adams and Jefferson writing everything down during the Declaration. During the Constitution, we had Matt, James Madison. James Madison took extensive, extensive notes. And he, again, um, because of who he went on, what he went on to accomplish, et cetera, his notes were preserved. They are a wonderful reference. And he wrote a lot about the importance of uh, Ellsworth within the Constitutional Convention as well. So that's one of the reasons we're, we're lucky to know what we do about him. James McClurg, who is from Virginia, you write, it's believed this doctor would have supported the Constitution, but he left because he was too intimidated by the level of discussion and didn't fit in. Yeah. From a doctor? Yes. Isn't that funny? Well, you got to understand that the, the people who were asked to come to the Constitutional Convention very often had serious uh, background as legal scholars. So I think that it was, and we found that to be, they were actually easier to research their life stories uh, than the signers of the Declaration, uh, just because there was just more written about them because they had done so much more. Um, that was, I can see how someone, even if you were very well educated, thinking like, I really don't, you know, I'm an expert in like yellow fever and, you know, quelling epidemics back home. I don't have any reason to be here right now and I'm just going to check out. How about for both of you some fact that you learned that really surprised you about any of them either constitution or the signers of the declaration. Some some unusual maybe well, even there's this podcast silence. No. <laughs> it's, um, it's fine. <laughs> okay. I don't say there's there's I was I was obsessed with Benjamin Franklin as a kid, but I did not know a lot of these stories uh, about his attending at the Constitutional Convention. That famous story about him, uh, he, he said at the end, as when they were signing, that he had seen this, the back of George Washington's chair was carved with a, with a sun. And he said, the whole time we've been sitting here for like three months, I'm wondering if that's a rising or setting sun. And now I have the pleasure of knowing that this is in fact a rising Son. That's what he said. When that he is said, a yeah. that is that still chokes me up. It's a it's a great story. It really is. It really is. Denise, and I, you, you had know, a moment there, <laughs> Denise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's beautiful. It's it's because it was it's such a beautiful artistic representation of getting to the end, or at least a resting stop 
over what was a very arduous, uh, contentious journey, uh, the creation of and signing of the Constitution. I uh, Governor Governor Morris is to me. Um, he was such just a just a a hidden a hidden gem and the diaries and his his exploits with the ladies i found very um interesting and i also had no idea uh prior to this that he's the guy who gave us the preamble to the constitution now i'm a i'm a schoolhouse rock kid so i mean i can sing the preamble i won't make you suffer through that but you know, we the people, um, in order to form a more perfect union, and um, that's Governor Morris, and that is to me one of the more poetic yeah. lines in any of our governing documents. So I, I, I had no idea that this um, <laughs> Lothario was, uh, you know, that this man's pen just created something that is probably one of the more quotable aspects of any document in American history. You say, I wrote some of this down, you say in the book that obviously he was an incorrigible playboy, but once tried to hit Dolly Madison? Yeah, he, he, no, I'm sorry, he, he tried to hit, hit on, on her. Hit on, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's my fault. <laughs> yeah, there you go, there you go. Okay. <laughs> I think we would have caught that typo. Yes. <laughs> yes. Important distinction. Okay. Anyway, it's it's even better. Hit on. Explain. Oh that. yeah. He liked Dolly. He's he's. If I'm not mistaken, he says that she. He's he, he writes glowingly about her cleavage, and then says like you know he thinks quote that she is amenable to seduction. That's the unquote famous line. The other thing that that cracked us up at one point because in our travels we ended up at the New York Historical Society. And there is his Morris's wooden leg. He had a wooden leg um, that he he lost his leg in a carriage accident. And there is his wooden leg, you know, in this you know glass case next to. I don't think um, it's still there. I don't know if you don't think I don't it's there. I think it's still there. Did you see it when you were there? No, I didn't see There's, it the last time I was there. Well, they move they move exhibits around, but it was right at the time that we saw it was right I next still have to a picture. I still have a picture from when it was on display. But yeah, it was it was somewhere. next to FDR's leg brace. One of them, yeah. I guess. I assume both of you have been to the Constitution Hall in Philadelphia. Yeah, oh, yes. Been yeah. through the statue room where all the statues are. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when you moved around to research for this, what what would be the total time researching for both the books? Oh my God, it's. I mean, you know, I, I think it might have been something like eight years total that we had spent prior to you know actually getting it, even writing it down. I mean, it's so yeah, it's it should always be an easier writing is always there's the researching and the writing and the researching and the pitching and the writing and the editing. I mean, it's the research. It's hard to know where one, I mean, you can't sometimes, really tell where one stops and the other begins. Sometimes there are papers. If, if there were papers that we wanted to consult, a lot of the times the papers were not in the state where they originated sure, from. So you, you could you could double up if you went to like the New York Public Library and see, if, you know, multiple the papers of multiple people or we just read biographies. And it's what's really interesting is the a lot of the sites we wanted to see for for ourselves and places like, you know, Philadelphia and Boston and D.C. I mean, you 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 have to go or Yorktown. I mean, we went to a lot of places. Um, but it is amazing when we were uh, getting ready to to talk to you, I thought about and while we we're talking how much since then. Right. This is 
15 years ago has been digitized. I mean, this would be a very different, there's yeah. so much more available just at home in front of your computer now. Um, and strangely, and I know this from, you know, other, other projects, COVID seemed to be pretty good for that because a lot of archives weren't open the way they normally would. So people working there, a lot more, a lot of stuff got scanned, made a lot of things digitized. So this is a process question. You were published by Quirk Books of Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh -huh. who, who are they and do they publish all the rest of your books? And if somebody has not read the rest of your books, what kind of uh, stuff do you write about? Um, Quirk, Quirk is published out of a small, um, say, little um, uh, row house in Philadelphia. Distributed is, by Random House. Distributed by Random House. It's a small independent publisher. There are legendary or famous in this business for having published a little something called Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Um, so they, and the worst case scenario handbook. Yeah. So they've done a lot of really, really interesting things. They did both signing their published, both signing their lives away and signing their rights away. And another book that we did for them called Stuff Every American Should Know, yeah. which is a little tiny um, sort of like little handbook about things that are American, aren't American, things we think are that are but aren't. Yeah. Um, Little stocking stuffer of sorts. So yeah. what, uh, what kind of then, but, other books do each of you write over the years? Uh, I, I've written, you know, I did a book uh, for kids, a picture book about uh, the life of Leonardo Fibonacci, the mathematician uh, from Italy who gives his name to the Fibonacci sequence. Uh, I've written, you know, novels as well um, that I guess are all coming out of my, uh, you know, background and, you know, fascination with mysteries. Um, I did, uh, I also write ghost write for other people, people who want to write a book, but cannot write a book. So I, they, I step in, I am the penman of their declaration, <laughs> so to speak. What That's about right. Denise? Yes, I do. I do primarily narrative nonfiction. Uh, I did a book called the girls of atomic city which was about uh, young women out of, uh, primarily out of Tennessee who were working on the first atomic bomb without their knowledge. And I uh, followed that. And that's been, that's been a, a remarkable book for me. Actually, it's in a six, seven languages now. That's, um, that was really fascinating to do because I actually got to interview women in their 80s and 90s who had actually worked um, on the Manhattan Project uh, during World War II. Um, I did a book called The Last Castle, which was about uh, the nation's largest home ever. It was a really a story of the turn of the century as seen through uh, the Vanderbilts and Biltmore House. And um, then had, uh, most recently, I had a picture book called Giving Thanks that just came out. And that is the picture book version of a book I did called We Gather Together, which discusses, it's really kind of a biography of gratitude. It sort of looks like how Thanksgiving actually became um, a holiday here in the United States. So I, I do mostly, I do, I mean, I, you know, I, we all dabble, we all have, we all have our fiction that we write, but I do, I do primarily narrative nonfiction. So Joseph, <clears throat> how often does somebody mispronounce your last name? <laughs> um, 
I, well, his say, brother would argue he he mispronounces it. Yes, my my brothers my brothers would say that I am mispronouncing our family name. I should be saying Danese instead of Dagnese. Um, and what I often say to people is, if you can say lasagna, you can pronounce <laughs> Danese. But your dad said Dagnese, so you said Dagnese. Stick, I'll stick with that. Yeah. What's next for you two? And uh, well, by the way, uh, as we wrap this up. Th- this book sells retail for fifteen ninety nine. I assume there's some discounts on one of the websites. If not, there's also a relatively inexpensive uh, um, you can for your computer uh, version of this book. Yes, I was just going to say the uh, during the month of February, I think to celebrate President's Day, um, both of those books are two ninety nine uh, for any ebook device uh, across all retailers. So, so the, it's a good, good it's a good it's a good time to to check it out to look into them yeah for so, sure so and what, they're audio as well yeah what's ne- by the way we you think this is going to be a seller as we get near to to 2026 for the 200th anniversary 250th anniversary oh my god yeah i would i i mean we always hope so but i mean it, it's I would like for people to look, but my love of history and I, I focus, I mean, my, my main focus in writing is history it started in, you know, 1976. I remember very clearly walking around as a kid, seeing all the, all the bicentennial celebrations yeah. and what people were wearing and what they were talking about. And that's, I mean, that's really when my love of history started. So I would love to see a whole other generation of kids get curious and uh investigate their own um american history let's go ahead yeah oh i was just gonna say i i i also enjoyed enormously visiting a lot of the signer homes uh (laughs) their their final resting places looking for uh morris's leg in in new york um but that kind of thing like is is brings back memories of those bicentennial years when when i was a kid and knowing like, oh, you know, soon we're going to be celebrating the 200th anniversary of, of yeah. the United back States. Back then. Yeah, 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 back then. Yeah. Oh, by the way, one of the more interesting things in the book is how often you tell us in your book that bodies were moved after they were buried. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And anyway, one last quick question as we're out of time. What are you each working on right now? Okay, so I am actually, after being in World War II and the Gilded Age, I am going back to this era, uh, and I am writing a book called Obstinate Daughters, which looks at the founding era, so colonial and during the Revolutionary War, and basically tells that that tale, tells that narrative through the experiences of women, people of color, and indigenous peoples. Joe, uh, I'm I'm currently working on a top secret ghostwriting project that I cannot reveal, uh, but <laughs> it's I true. it's it's fascinating, and I have no doubt that you will be interviewing this author when the book comes out because it is it is pretty shocking uh, about you know uh, American politics. But that aside, I am currently trying to write at least three short stories for uh, submission to various mystery anthologies uh, that are, you know, they're sort of put out a call for uh, for short stories. So I'm working on that as well. These two books written by Denise Kiernan and Joseph Dagnese are available. One is on the Constitution signers and one is on the Declaration of Independence signers. And we thank you so much for taking this time and talking about a book that you wrote a long time ago. Thank you thank very you much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.